from talking about that to the Word of God, why you came here tonight. And so um, my understanding is right around the 8 o'clock hour is what time we're supposed to be done, and I will do everything I can to honor that. Uh, okay, let's just all get real honest. How many like it when a guest preacher goes way beyond normal? Come on. I mean, like, yes, I'm so glad he's gone 30 minutes past when Pastor Yoder normally preaches, okay? No, I mean, you know what starts happening. You're like, did Brother Yoder forget to tell him? Okay, I remember when I was a teenager, there was a missionary to the Jews that came to our church. I was about ninth or 10th grade, and he preached from 7 o'clock till 9.30. And he had a table up, and he was talking about every single piece of article or whatever in the tabernacle. And he was so boring. I mean, it was the driest thing in the whole world. And you're looking and you're going, it is now not, you know, church normally gets, goes from like, you know, 7 to 8.15, and it's like 8.30, 8.45, 9, 9.15, 9.30, and he's up there just wah, 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 and this is the candlestick, and you're going, you know, Pastor, can we please give him the gong show or something, okay? So hopefully I won't get the gong show, but I'll do my best to get out of here at 8 o'clock because uh, I'm hungry, okay? So Ephesians chapter number 4, going to go to a familiar passage, and uh, I'm going to preach on a, a familiar topic. Probably have heard a message on this once or twice before, uh, but you never can visit this too much because it's not something that you ever want to go a length of time with it not being cared for. And so Ephesians chapter number 4 and verse number 31. And uh, do you all stand for the reading of the word around here, Brother Yoder? It's always, sometimes, okay. So why don't this half stand up and this half stay seated? No, okay. Uh, why let's do this. Let's go ahead and stand up for the word. We'll read it and then we'll pray together, okay? So Ephesians chapter number 4 and verse number 31, it says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Let's read verse 32 together in unison. Ready? And be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. That's a pretty powerful verse, verse number 32. God says to me that I am supposed to forgive one another even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. What, am I, what is he saying to us? I should forgive others just like God and Christ forgave me. That's about as simple of a statement from that verse as you can get. And I'm going to talk about uh, forgiveness tonight. And let me just preface this by saying this. When the Apostle Paul was converted on the road to Damascus, okay, and he got knocked off the horse, and God was speaking to him. He said, how long are you going to kick against the, what's the next word, everybody? Pricks, okay? That uh, conviction of the Holy Spirit where he takes his finger and he prods you in a specific area. So God was saying, Paul, I've been talking to you for a while about this. And you have been doing what? Kicking against the pricks. It's the idea of somebody uh, cattle prodding a cattle, and that cattle's kicking back, saying, stop doing that, right? And can I, tell, can I be honest with you? I've been in Christianity long enough that I've sat in a pew and listened to a sermon and said, God, don't go there. Right? Can I get an amen right there? Okay? Where you're like, oh, God, why are you going down there? No, 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 not today. You know what? And we kick against the pricks. And matter of fact, the invitation's given, and the Holy Spirit saying, he's talking to you, and you sit there in the pew, and you kind of grab the pew, and you go, no, I ain't going forward. Why? What are you doing? You're kicking against the pricks. Okay? And so I'm going to say this, and, and, and before I even get into the message tonight, don't kick against the pricks. If the Holy Spirit comes and takes his finger and pokes you in an area, don't grab his finger and break it. Say, you know what, I'm going to do something with it. 
Can I get, can I get you to just say, you know what, that's okay, I'm going to do that tonight? Okay. All right, let's pray together. We're going to jump into this message. Father, we love you. We thank you, Lord God, for tonight. Bless now the message. Lord, give me the words to say. And Lord, I pray that the folks of this great church would receive it. And Lord, not just receive it, but they do something with it. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, you can be seated. Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. So, I am supposed to forgive other people in my life just like Christ forgave me the day that I got saved. Now, in order for us to understand what I'm supposed to do for somebody else, let's first understand what is it that God did for us the day that we got saved. The word forgiveness, okay, that is when I got saved, I was forgiven. What exactly does that mean? We're going to give you three, I'm going to give you three uh, very simple definitions to help lay this out for you in front of you of what does it mean to forgive? Because sometimes we say, oh, I forgave them, and I think... Some of us may just say that. It's kind of a coined phrase. But really, what exactly does that mean when we say, well, God forgave me? So, statement number one. When I was forgiven, it is this. That is, God laid aside my sin, or I could say it this way, because he laid it aside, there is nothing between me and him. Now, um, I'm going to grab a chair here. and uh, Brother Yoder, can I borrow you for a quick second for an illustration? Um, Let's see here. If I go down there, do I get out of camera view? Or am I okay? I'm okay? Okay, so then we're going to go down here then. I was just want to see you walk upstairs. <laughs> okay, we're going to put that right there. You're not going to sit in it. Okay, all we're going to simply do is we're going to put something between me and you. Okay, I'm going to represent a sinner, and you're going to represent God. Okay, is that good? Good representation, God? No. Okay, all right, so... <laughs> Okay, so here, here it is, okay? So here's God, I'm the sinner, and this chair represents sin. What does it represent, everybody? Sin, okay? And so right now, I am a lost sinner who needs to get saved. I have no relationship with God. I'm actually over here, I'm a child of the devil, right? I'm a child of the devil, lost without Christ. And the problem that I have is for all have what? Sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. I have no relationship with God. He's not my heavenly father. What's between me and him? My what? Sin, right? Now, I come to the cross. You have a cross in here anywhere? Oh, okay. Most churches have a cross. Y'all should get a cross. No. <laughs> Uh, all right. But anyway, so I come to the cross. Watch this now. I come to the cross, and what I do? I recognize. So at some point in your life, you recognize this. Somebody sat down with the Bible, and they said, if you died without Christ, you would die and go to hell. You need to get saved. Jesus Christ died on the cross for you, and he wants to save you. Would you accept him as your Savior? And you said, yes, I would. And you accepted Christ as your Savior. And at that moment, what did God do with your sin? Pick that sin right up there and lay it where? Aside. Now, guess what happens? I am no longer a child of the devil. I'm now in the family of God. I'm a child of God. He's my heavenly father. I'm now adopted into his family. And we have a relationship. Why? Because I was forgiven of my what? Sin. And God took it and he laid it aside. Can I get a witness right there and say amen? Okay. Aren't you glad there was a day that you came to the cross and God laid your sin aside? Okay. Now, that's forgiveness. Thank you, sir. That's forgiveness where God does what? He takes our sin and he lays it aside side and there's no longer anything between me and him. Now, let me give you a second definition. The second definition is this. God also said, when I forgave you, I also am not going to hold your sin against you. 
I forgave you and I'm not going to hold your sin against you. I'm not going to hold a grudge. I'm not going to have a chip on my shoulder. I'm not going to have this long laundry list of things that you did wrong on earth that I'm going to wait for you to get to heaven and say, we need to sit down and have a conversation about this. I remember when I was younger, I was, at, I was uh, you know, hearing some preaching where somebody would stand up and say, bless God, someday God's going to roll out the video and he's going to roll out the screen and you're going to have to sit there and you're going to have to watch a video of all the things you did wrong on earth and you're going to have to answer to God for all the things that you did wrong. And I used to say, boy, that's going to be a horrible movie. Matter of fact, that's going to be a movie rated in such a way that you probably couldn't play it in heaven, right? If I had to sit, you know, sit down and have God list all these things where he says, you know what? He said, uh, you know, Brother Yoder, he said, you and I need to talk about the time that you did this or the time that you went there or the time that you looked at this or the time that you said that to your wife. Your wife told me about that, the time that you said, and you, God's waiting in heaven with this big old stack of things that he wants to talk about. How many would be excited to go to heaven if you knew that God's going to be waiting there with all your sin going, well, it's about time you got here. We have some things we have to talk about, right? You wouldn't be looking forward to heaven. No, God said, look, when I forgave you, you know what? I'm not going to hold it against you. I don't have a grudge against you. I've had people hold the grudge against me. I was in high school and I'm riding along on my bike at 1030 at night with two of my friends. Let me just tell you this, parents, you kids do not need to be out riding a bike at 1030 at night with their friends, okay? Nothing good's going to come out of that. But anyways, my mom let me ride around the neighborhood and we're driving down this road and we come up to this side, uh, this driveway. And I said, oh, that's where Amy Rose lives as we're riding the bike. And they said, Amy who? I said, oh, Amy Rose, girl from my Christian school. They go to school. They go, oh, she lives here. And they take off down the driveway. And I thought, where in the world are they going? I said, where are you guys going? They said, we're going to go doorbell ditcher. Okay, now, I don't know what terminology you use around here, but you've all done it or know somebody who did it, and that is at 1030 at night, you go ring their doorbell, hide in the bushes when they come out, right? Or you run away. How many, come on, get away. How many have ever done that? Come, come on, Brother Yoder, go, get, the, get the bend out, okay? All right, there we go, got another one. Who else wants to confess and jump in with us? Huh? You all good, good little people, all right? So but anyway, so my friends, they did that. And I thought, oh my goodness, they're about the doorbell ditch, Amy Rose's house. Well, about 30 seconds later, they're peeling out of that driveway on their bike. That's where are you going? They said, the dad's after us. He didn't just open up the door grumpy. He ran and got in his car and took off after them. I'm thinking, oh no, that means I'm going to be standing right here. So I took off with him. Well, his dad eventually figured out that I was with them, and he told his daughter that I was with him. We went to a Christian school, 14 kids in our class. She was in our school. She was in my class. We rode in a van together to school. Only about 10 of us. Guess what she did? She got in that van and wouldn't talk to me. I was part of their youth group. I went to one church, and not, but I go to their youth group activities on Friday night. The pastor would pick up her and about three of us, and he'd pick us up, and she'd get in the car, and all four of us sitting in the car, and she wouldn't talk to me. What was she doing? Holding my sin against me. Right? Get to heaven, God going... You're like, no, that's not God. You're right, that's not God. Because what did he do? He forgave you. He forgave you and he said, I'm going to lay it aside. I'm not going to hold it against you. The next thing I'm going to do with it is I'm going to pardon you. Pardon it. You say, well, pardon, what word is that? That's the word justified. What is justified? You've heard it as a little kid. Just as if, what? I never sinned, right? Just as if I never sinned. As if it didn't even take place. The word pardon is this. If somebody was pardoned for a felony by the president, it would be as if it never happened. Because somebody who has committed a felony, what do they have to do? Every time they go and fill out a job application, there's a little place on there. Have you committed a felony? If yes, what and when? You know, then fill it out. Go to the next job application. You got to do it again. Next job application. You got to do it again. Relive that moment over and over and over and over again. It's stuffed in your face that you committed a felony 
unless the president pulls out his pen and says a presidential pardon. The very next day after that presidential pardon, pardon, that man goes, fills out an application. Guess what he does? He goes to come, have you committed a felony? Ha! I don't have to talk about it anymore. Why? It's gone, right? And God said, when I saved you, I took your sins and I buried it where? In the depths of the sea. I set it as far as the east is from the west. Matter of fact, it's gone, gone, gone. And if you came to God and said, God, please forgive me of what I did when I was 19, if you've already asked for forgiveness in God's mind, he goes, what sin are you talking about? It's all gone, amen? And every single one of us that received forgiveness of sins, what we do? God said, I laid it aside. I'm not going to hold it against you. Matter of fact, you're justified and your sins are all gone. Now, here's the thing. He then says this. He said, that's the forgiveness that you received from Christ on the cross. He said, now turn and do likewise to others. Just think about that for a second. Because he said, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Just like Christ laid his sins aside, I'm supposed to lay others aside. Just like Christ won't hold my sin against me, I'm not supposed to hold my sin against somebody else. Just like Christ pardoned my sin, God says, you know what? You need to pardon other people's sins. Now, I want you to go with me to Luke chapter number 23. We're going to jump over to another spot, and we're going to look at Luke chapter number 23. We're going to look at Christ on the cross, and we're going to see a statement that he makes from the cross, which will launch us into Matthew chapter number 26 in just a moment. But in Luke chapter number 23, and verse number 34, it says this. Wait just a moment or two for the papers to start turning. And Luke 23, 34. Then said Jesus, Father, what's the next two words, everybody? Okay, Father, forgive who? Them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I was reading my Bible one day, and I stopped, and I said, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. And I started just sitting there thinking and pondering for a little while, them. He didn't say, Father, forgive him. He said, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive her. No, he said, Father, forgive them. Kind of this really broad brush that he painted from the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And I begin to think, I wonder who is the them? Who is the them that he's talking about? So let's go in our Bibles, and let's, let's go backtrack just a little bit up to this point, and let's go to Matthew chapter number 26, and let's begin to picture who is it that Christ is forgiving on the cross when he says, Father, forgive them. In Matthew chapter chapter number 26, and roll with me down to uh, verse number 47. You have Christ is in the garden Gethsemane, and in verse number 47 it says, And while he yet spake, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now he that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same as he, hold him fast. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. And Jesus said unto him, what's the first word, everybody? Everybody, friend. Wherefore art thou come? He right now is about to be betrayed by his, what? Friend. You have to raise your hand to this one. But there's probably somebody in this room at some point in your life got betrayed by a friend. Betrayed by somebody close to you. They kind of turned their back on you. They stabbed you in the back. They threw you under the bus. And they betrayed you. And Jesus looks at this gentleman, Judas, and he says, Friend, wherefore art thou come? You know, when he was on the cross and he said, Father, forgive them, that stroke went all the way back to Judas. 
Go to Matthew chapter number 26. We're just going to stay in Matthew chapter 26, and, and we'll go to 27 in just a second. Go down with me to Matthew chapter 26 and verse number 65. And now Jesus is in captivity. And I want you to notice that he's in captivity. It says in verse 65, Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He hath spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now ye have heard this, his blasphemy. What think ye? They answered and said, He is guilty of death. Then they did spit in his face, and they buffeted him, and others smote him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy unto us, thou Christ, who is he that smote thee? We also know during this time was also the time that they blindfolded him, and they would punch him in the face and kind of say, Oh yeah, if you're the son of God, then Pam, who is it that has uh, punched you in the face right now? Now you have to think about this. Jesus had a bunch of people spitting in his face. Now, I've had the wonderful privilege in my life of having somebody spit in my face. Okay, anybody else have ever had the wonderful privilege of having spit bestowed upon your face? Anybody? No, one, two, yeah. Okay, there's just a handful of us where somebody went, spit in your face. There was a bus kid. I was all the way back in Rhode Island, and I was standing in the stairwell right here. His name was Shakai Tripp, and uh, maybe one day he'll watch one of these online messages and call me and apologize, okay? No, but anyways, um, he was standing right here. I was in the stairwell, and I think I told Shakai, sit down, and he didn't like it, and he said, just like that, just I stepped off the bus and I wiped that stuff off my face and I thought, that little turkey just spit in my face. I, I couldn't believe it. Now, can I tell you this? That is like probably, I was 18 at the time, so you're talking about 26 years ago? Yeah, something like that. 26 years ago, he spit in my face and I can remember his face to the day and I know his name. Do you know why? Because when he spit in my face, brother, he was only about... That far away. You know all the people who spit in Jesus' face? Do you think when he was on the cross he remembered who it was? Man. They spit in his face. I mean, just kidding. They also begin to buffet him. Now, question. How close do I have to get to you to punch you in the face? I ain't going to punch you from way back here. No go-go gadget arms here, right? Okay. No, I'm going to walk right up and I'm going to get right up in your face and I'm going to punch you. You know what? Those people that punched Jesus in the face, guess what? The moment he was on the cross and he said, Father, forgive who? Them. That guy that spit in my face, forgive him. Those people that buffeted me, forgive him. The man who put the blindfold on my face before they begin to mock me and make fun of me, forgive him. Okay? All those people are people that are right there in his face and here he is on the cross and he says, Father, forgive them. If you back up to Matthew chapter 26, verse 59, notice what else happened to Jesus during this time. It says the chief priests and the elders and all the council sought false witness against Jesus. Notice that, false witness against Jesus. But they found none. Yea, though many false witnesses came... Yet they found none, and at last came two false witnesses. That was a bunch of people lying about Jesus. Everything that was said by those people about Jesus was 100% what? False. I'm a teenager, and I was uh, teaching uh, every now and then. My pastor would ask me on a, like a Thursday night or a Friday night activity. He'd say, could you bring the, uh, the devotional tonight? And so I brought the devotional three or four times. And then my pastor came to me one day, and he said, he said Josh, he said, can I ask you a question? He said, I know the answer to it. He said, but I just need to hear it from you. And that is this. He said, uh, he, oh boy, he said, I feel weird even asking. He said, do you smoke? And I went, do I smoke? I said, what do you mean, do I smoke? 
I said, my stepfather smokes. And I think it's the nastiest thing in the whole world. I don't like how my clothes smell. I said, I, I, I said, sucking on something that's on fire makes no sense to me. Wasting all that money makes no sense to me. No, I don't smoke. And I responded just like that. He said, I knew what the answer was. I said, why in the world are you asking me, do I smoke? He said, well, one of the kids in the youth group said, you shouldn't be teaching on at the activities because you smoke. I looked at him and I was offended. I mean, I was deeply offended. I looked at him and I said, I said, I am, I said, that is the most ridiculous thing that I've ever heard. No, I don't smoke, never have tried, and don't plan on it. But it was 100% what? False. Now, you might have been in here and you've had somebody say stuff about you that you would say when you were told by it, you looked at them and your jaw dropped off of your face and you said, what? Who? That? No, that's, that is 100%. That's not, that's not even close to true. We've all been in a spot where somebody ran around and said something. Well, that's, that's what Jesus went through. He has all these witnesses, and they are what? 100%. What kind of witnesses? False witnesses. And here he's on the cross, and he says what? Father, forgive who? Them. All those people who lied about me, forgive them. Those people who punched me, forgive them. Those people who spit in my face, forgive them. The man, my friend, who turned me over into all this, forgive him. Think about this. Herod and Pontius Pilate, they kind of played ping pong with Jesus for a little while. Like Pontius Pilate's like, I don't want him, you have him. Herod's like, I don't want him, you have him. But let me ask you a question. Both Herod or Pontius Pilate, did either of those men have the, uh, the power in their hand to say he's innocent, let him go? Talk to me now. Yes. Did they? No. So he was incarcerated and crucified 100% falsely and had two men who said, you know what? I know we should let him go. Pontius Pilate actually said, you know what? I find no fault in this man, but crucify him anyways. Father, forgive who? Them. The crowd that yelled for him to be crucified, go to Matthew chapter number 27. In verse number 21, the governor answered and said unto them, the governor being Pontius Pilate, whether of them, whether of the twain, or which of the two will ye that I release unto you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate saith unto them, What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? They all say unto him, Let him be crucified. And the governor said, What? What evil, what ha what evil hath he done? But they cried out the more, saying, Let him be crucified. Now, think about this. How many people were probably present that day where they had Jesus standing here and Barabbas standing over here, and he says, Okay, who do you want? And they all said, Give us Barabbas. And he goes, Give Barabbas? But what would this guy do? And they said, we don't care, crucify him. And he goes, okay. You know, I want you to think about who was in that courtyard that day. I don't know. Was it 200 people? Was it 2,000 people? Was it 5,000 people? I don't know how big the courtyard was. I don't know how many people were there. But we know that there was a crowd of people yelling, crucify him. And I sat there and thought, if there was 1,000 people there, I wonder if in that crowd of 1,000, there was somebody that was there the day that he fed the 5,000. I wonder if one of those people was related to somebody that had a, an aunt or an uncle or a brother or a cousin receive their sight by Jesus. I wonder if any of those were related to the uh, person that was raised from the dead. I wonder if there, any of them knew who Lazarus was. I wonder if them any, ever uh, see, saw him calm the sea or, or uh, cast the demon out of the Gadarean demoniac. And, and, and actually, maybe that was a, a brother of somebody. And there they are in the courtyard saying, yeah, I know what he did for my aunt, but I don't really care. I don't care what Jesus did for me. Go ahead and crucify him anyways. 
And people who partook of the goodness and the grace of Jesus Christ are now yelling, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And here he's on the cross. Father, forgive who? Them. We know that the soldiers scourged Jesus and we understand that a scourging would be a time where they take the person and they uh, strap them to a log or they strap them to a rock or maybe they strap them to the wall. And you have to think about this. The person who chained him to the wall, how close was he to Jesus when he was chaining him? Standing where? Right there. Jesus puts out his arms. That man puts the shackles on. Jesus probably looked right at him. The man who grabbed that cat of nine tails. Whoosh. <laughs> you think Jesus knew who he was? Sure he did. Would you know who whipped you if somebody whipped you with a cat of nine tails? You'd never forget their face. And here he's on the cross. Father, forgive them. How about the man who put the crown of thorns on Jesus' head? Walked up and took that crown of thorns and jammed it down on Jesus' head and grabbed that reed and beat it into his head and stuck it in his hands. Oh, hell, king of the Jews! <laughs> Jesus knew that man. And he said, Father, forgive them. The crowd that then jeered, or the, the soldiers who nailed Jesus to the cross. One man holding a nail. Right there. One man with a hammer. Right there. Other hand. Maybe there's two different guys over here. Looks him square in the eyes as they nailed him to the cross. The crowd that jeered him and said, Ah, if he be the Son of God, let him save himself. The people that laughed and mocked and scorned him at his feet. He said, Father, forgive who? Now I want you to notice one last thing here and really to bring it all down to what Jesus went through on the cross. How is Jesus' clothes at this current time? Matthew chapter number 27 and verse number 28. It says this, At this moment they stripped him and they put, a, put on him a scarlet robe. For a brief moment when they stripped him in front of everybody, he was what everybody? front of all those people. He's naked. They throw a scarlet robe on him. And what do they do? They then throw the crown of thorns on his head and they mock him and they laugh at him and they spit on him and they uh, smote him in the head. And it says in verse number 31, it says, and after they mocked him, they took the robe off from him. So at this moment, he's what? Talk to me now. Naked. And then they put his raiment back on him and led him away to be crucified. Now he's on the cross, and look in verse number 35. It says, And they crucified him, and they parted his garments, casting lots. That means they took his garments off of him, tore them up into little pieces, and played a little gambling game, and gave out prizes for the crucifixion of the king of the Jews. Everybody got a souvenir! Right? Oh, look what I won! Yeah, the old king of the Jews up there! <laughs> a bloody piece of his robe! Well, if he's running around with a bloody piece of his robe that's been parted out, how's Jesus hanging on the cross right now? Naked. And he says, Father, what? 
forgive them. I want you to listen to this statement, and that is, when Jesus went through this time period, from the moment that he was given over from Judas to the moment that he died, Jesus was physically abused, we know that. He was emotionally and mentally and verbally abused by the things that they said and the things that they did to him. And he also was sexually abused. Say, hmm? If you read in the newspaper tomorrow that the Brookings Police Department found somebody chained to somebody's tree in the backyard of their house and they were naked, you know what would go through your mind? A person was sexually abused. Jesus experienced every violation known to man in this short little times period. And he said what? Everybody say it. Father, forgive them. Now, don't kick against the pricks. When Jesus says to us, you're supposed to forgive others, he knows what he's talking about. Because he went through it all. Now, I want you to go with me to Matthew chapter number 18, and we're doing just right on time here. We're going to kind of jump a little bit and let that portion of the message just run around in your mind for a minute or two. And we're going to go over to Matthew chapter number 18, and we're going to look at verse number 21, and uh, we're going to kind of hit a uh, famous verse here that we've all know, heard about and known, and we're going to look at the parable to go along with it. Matthew chapter number 18 and verse number 21, it says, Then came Peter to him, to Jesus, and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? And he throws out a lowball number, right? Till seven times? Like, you know, can I just do seven and then be off the hook? Okay? And you can see Jesus kind of more go, <laughs> good try. Okay? And so Jesus answers back to him. Jesus saith unto him, I saith not unto thee until seven times, but until what, everybody? Seventy times seven. Now, seventy times seven, mathematicians help me out. Okay, we've got one mathematician. Do we have anybody else as a mathematician? You're just amazing. Okay, no. Okay, 470 times 7 is 490. Now, I'm just going to throw this in for free, okay, for, uh, and that is this. You know, people say, well, this translation, this translation, they say the same thing. No, they don't. Okay? Um, every other translation of the Bible says 77 times. Now, is there a difference between 77 times and 70 times 7? One is 77 and one's 490. If I came up to you and said, hey, you know what, I'm gonna, tomorrow I got a bunch of money I want to give you, I'm going to give you 70 times 7. You're going home, man, man, bro, that's not going to give me $490 tomorrow. And I came up and I hand you $77. And you say, what's this? I said, well, it's about the same. You'd be like, no, that's not the same, okay? So when the, the, it, all it is is just a three little word. It's a three words, and they just kind of change the order, and it totally changes the meaning. And so when they say, well, it just says the same thing, no, it doesn't. That's a little free little note there. And anyway, so let me, let me move on, okay? And that is this. So Jesus says to, or Peter says to Jesus, how often am I supposed to forgive my brother when he sins against who? What's it say? Sin against who? Me. That was personal. I mean, what they said was about me. What they did was to me. What he did was to me. What my dad did was to me, right? When a brother sins against me, can I forgive him 70 times and be good? And Jesus says, no, 70 times 7, 490. So, Mrs. Yoder, that means what you can do is you go to Dollar General, get you a big piece of poster board, put 490 squares on it, and write the word Ivan at the top, okay? And then when he messes up, you get out the Sharpie, walk over there and go, boop, boop, 
and then a boop boop, and then some days boop 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 boop. Okay, yeah, you know, and so and then when he gets up to about you know like 470 and 480, what do you do? Okay, you go to him, kind of give him a warning, like you know you're down to 20. After that, cut off. Okay, and you, now you think, oh, that's kind of silly. It is silly because could you imagine if that's what God did for us? Right? He said, forgive the same way I forgave you. God does not have a chart in heaven keeping track of all the times that I messed up. Because can I be honest with you? My 490 was gone a long, long, long time ago. But what Jesus was trying to get Peter to understand was, it's not a numerical number when it comes to how often you forgive somebody when you sin against you. It's just that you operate in forgiveness. So the moment somebody offends you, you immediately say, I forgive you. And then this person offends you and they do wrong against you. I forgive 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 you. I just walk around and I operate in forgiveness and I forgive everybody their trespasses and I don't keep track of how many times because God doesn't keep track of how many times I mess up. Amen? Now, Peter looked at Jesus funny. You say, how do you know he looked at Jesus funny? Because he then went into a parable. Because he was like, okay, you didn't get that? So let me explain a parable to you, Mr. Peter. So I'm going to explain the parable to you. The parable is the Lord who had all these different servants underneath him, and he was sitting down and he was checking the record books of what servants owed him what kind of money. And he comes across one servant who owes him 10,000 talents. Now, 10,000 talents, modern day money, millions and millions and millions of dollars. And he comes across this 10,000 talent debt, and he says, you know what? I need to go talk to that guy. He walks up to him and says, hey, sir. He said, you owe me 10,000 talents. And the guy says, oh, but, you know, I don't have the money to pay it. And he said, well, I'm going to throw you into jail and your family into jail if you don't pay that debt. He says, oh, just have mercy on me and give me some time and be patient with me. And all of a sudden, the Lord gets a soft spot in his heart. And he looks at that guy who owes him 10,000 talents and says, you know what? Better yet, let's just do this. I forgive you of the debt. You don't owe me anything. And he goes, oh, thank you so much. And so that guy walks away, elated, right? He just got forgiven of 10,000 talents. And he's walking down the road. He's going, oh, that was so wonderful how he just forgave me of all that debt. And all of a sudden he goes, wait a second. Where's that guy that owes me 100 pence? Now, you know what 100 pence is? 100 pence is the smallest monetary amount of money. What's the smallest amount of money in American? We've got a little old penny. You're going to see a bunch of pennies around here tomorrow at Vacation Bible School. I thought the decorations for me. And he popped my bubble and told me it was for VBS. Okay, But anyway, so, he, so he's got this 100 pennies. So what is that? 100 pennies? One dollar. Million dollar debt? Forgiven of it. Where's that guy that owes me a dollar? Goes and finds the guy and says, hey, you owe me a dollar. And the guy says, I don't have the money. The Bible says he grabs him by the throat. You can kind of picture him throwing him up against the wall, got him by the throat and says, buddy, if you don't pay me that dollar, I'll take you and your wife and your children and I'll let you rot in jail if you're not going to pay me that dollar. And the guy says, I don't have the dollar. So he throws him into jail over a dollar right after he was forgiven of millions and millions of dollars. So all the other servants are watching this play out in front of them, and they go, ooh, that's the guy that was just forgiven of 10,000 talents. What's he doing to that guy for the dollar? He, they, they go and they tell the Lord, and they say, Lord, you know that guy that you forgave of the 10,000 talents? He just grabbed a guy by a throat and threw him in a jail over a dollar. Now, skip down to the end of the parable, end of the chapter. Matthew chapter number 18. And look with me in verse number... 32. It says, Then his Lord, after that he called him and said unto him, O thou wicked servant, 
I forgave thee of all that debt because thou desiredst me? Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was, what everybody? Wroth. And delivered him to, I want you everybody to read this word because this is the whole crux of the whole uh, passage here. And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors. Delivered him to who? The tormentors. He said, I'm pretty angry with you. I'm going to turn you over to the tormentors till he should pay all that is debt. Now, here's a parable that always has a earthly mean, uh, it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Here's the, that was the earthly story. Here's the heavenly meaning, verse number 35. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you. Do what unto you? Turn you over to the tormentors. So shall my fa heavenly Father do also unto you if you from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. Everybody listen to this statement now. People who live in unforgiveness, live in torment. I'll say it again. People who choose to live in unforgiveness are tormented. They are tormented while their offender is just happy-go-lucky going on their merry, merry way in California while their person, other person's tormented in Florida. So if I forgive them, I'll let them off the hook! Look, they're not on your hook. You're on your own hook. It's the hook of being tormented. I believe this, that when somebody says, I will not forgive that person for what they did, I believe this, that God steps back and says, Tormentors, it's yours. I want you to be tormented so much that you will come to the place that you will say, I forgive them. And I believe this, the moment the person says, I forgive them, God comes up, grabs the tormentors by their neck and says, get off of them, get off of them, get off of them, leave them alone. But I believe God says, because that's what it says, right? I'm not looking into scripture there. He said, your heavenly father will do the same thing to you if you choose not to forgive somebody of their trespasses. God says, I'll let you turn over the tormentors. On people who live in unforgiveness, stay up at three and four o'clock in the morning, tormented in their mind. Now, I'm going to try to quickly, I'm going to go over about three or four minutes, maybe eight to 10 or 20 or 30. No, just kidding. Okay, I'm going to go over just a couple minutes to finish this up. But watch this now. I'm going to tell you where the torment is. The torment is in your mind and in your heart. And that is you are tormented over the unforgiveness towards somebody who did something to you. And here's how the torment works. You see, the cross is a symbol of forgiveness. I receive forgiveness at the cross, and I'm also going to take my offender to the cross. I'm going to lay them at the cross, and I'm going to forgive them just like Christ forgave me. Or, if I choose not to forgive them, I'm going to take them to court. I'm going to take them to court. Now, what's the purpose of court? The purpose of court is to find a person guilty and then sentence them and punish them. So I'm going to take them to court. But can I tell you where the court case is going to take place? It's not going to be in a real courtroom. The court case is going to take place right here and right here in my heart and mind. They're going to be over here, the defendant, the person who offended me. And I'm going to be over here, the prosecuting attorney. Now, the prosecuting attorney has a job to do. And that is to go out and find evidence to prove that that person right there is guilty of what they are charged with. I'm going to find the text messages. I'm going to find the conversations. I'm going to find the witnesses to prove they're guilty, guilty, guilty. And I will go around and dig up evidence in my mind and then I'm going to come in front of the court case and say, on day this, they did this, this, and this and I have the text message to prove that they're guilty. And I'm going to present it 
Where is, a where is a, in a court case, where is the evidence presented to? Who are they trying to convince that that person's guilty? It's the jury. Some people often want to say judge, but no, it's 12 people that sit up here who sit there and they listen to the evidence, they listen to the arguments, they look at exhibit A, they look at the pictures, they hear the witnesses, and then they say, the judge says, you may now go and deliberate. And they go into a little room somewhere and they sit down, they talk about the evidence, and then they come out and they pronounce that person either what? Innocent or guilty. But guess who the jury is in this case? I'm the prosecuting attorney, but then I'm also the person that comes sit up here and I listen to the evidence I go in that back room and every single time I come out of that room they are what guilty as charged on all accounts now the moment they are charged guilty it's then turned over to who the judge and he sits up here and he listens to the person say we the jury find the defendant guilty of a B and C guilty on all accounts he then takes that guilty verdict and he goes into his little room and he studies court cases. And what is he doing? He's coming up with the punishment. Will it be restitution? Will it be community service? Will it be time? How long the time will be? He's the one that comes out and says, now I have come to a conclusion and that is this, you will serve 25 years in prison without parole. But guess who the judge is in this court case? Me. I lay in bed at 3 o'clock in the morning and come up with all the ways that that person ought to be punished for the crime that they committed against me. And I come up with the most heinous things that I can come up with. And, and boy, if I had it my way, I'd take out a full-page ad and I, I'd put out a full-page spread and let the whole world know what they did against me because he ought to be punished. His name ought to be smeared. He lied about me. Boy, and we sit there and we're... But here it is. It is torment over and over and over and over and over. And it, for some people, it goes on years and years and years and years and years. They're 30 years old and they're still running their dad through a court case from 20 years ago. I had a teenage boy when I was a principal of the Christian school and I, he, he was having some struggles with a family in our church and some kids that were going to our Christian school and he came and talked with me and I talked him through this court case here and I said, you have one or two choices, son. I said, you can either forgive or you can continue to be tormented. That's totally up to you. I came to work a couple days later and there was a three-by-five card folded in half sitting on my desk and I opened it up and it was his writing, two words, case dismissed. And I went up to him and I said, feels good, doesn't it? It's the best thing I ever did. The torment's all gone. That torment will disappear the moment you say, case dismissed. Forgiveness frees you from torment. Dismiss the case and find freedom. I was... 15 years of age. My dad and mom got divorced when I was about three and a half or four. Did the whole custody back and forth thing that happens after a divorce, all that yay, that's exciting stuff. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. About the age of nine, my mom got complete custody of us. At the age of 10, my dad brought me, my brother, and my sister out to a meal at the Italian village and he handed us three envelopes with savings bonds. And there were savings bonds that we had been given as we were growing up. I know now what he was doing was giving us the last thing in his house that belonged to us. And at the age of 10, after that meal, for the next about five years, no birthday phone call, no Christmas present, 
no contact, no nothing. And we lived in the state of Rhode Island. Okay, you don't get very far away from the state of Rhode Island. State of Rhode, I, I can drive through the state of Rhode Island quicker than I can drive from here to Brother Whittemore's church in Watertown. Okay, tiny little place. Disappeared off the face of the earth. And bitterness and anger towards my dad invaded my heart as a young teenage boy. When everybody else had a dad, when everybody else had the father figure at the soccer games and at the school outings and all that type of stuff, it was bitter and anger towards my dad in my heart. Very angry young teenage boy. I got, we had a coach that came to our Christian school when I was in seventh grade and everybody gravitated towards him and I tried to gravitate towards him and I felt kind of like I was rejected by him in seventh grade and eighth grade. And then in ninth grade, I tried out for the soccer team and I got cut from the soccer team. And uh, so then I had this bitterness and anger towards my dad. And then I had begun to build bitterness and anger towards my coach. And so one day I sat down and wrote my coach a letter. And I wrote him a long three-page handwritten letter and cited all of the things that he had done wrong against me for the last three years. And I folded it up. And my closing statement in that letter was, and you don't love me, you are just like my, anybody know what the next word was? Dad. And I walked out, my home, my room where my locker was, was in his room where his desk was, and I walked out, and I remember pitching that on that desk, and walking out, and going home, and said, I done told him, put him in his place. The next time I came to school, and my coach walked up to me, and he said, he said, lunchtime, I want you to come by my room. And I knew exactly why he wanted me to come by his room. I had told him off yesterday. And so he came in, and he had read that thing, and he had highlights all over it, and he sat down, and he talked through every single talking point the whole way through, and he said, and here, that's a miss." misunderstanding and this is actually not a true statement he talked away whole through and then he got to the final statement he said right here you say I don't love you I'm just like your dad he folded it up he put it on the desk and he looked at me he said Josh can I ask you a question yeah he said why do you go to this Christian school he said I said because my mom pays my school bill just like that kind of arrogantly he goes well he said, actually, he said, your mom can't afford to pay for you to go to this Christian school right now. He said, the reason you go to this Christian school, he said, is because I'm paying your school bill. And he said, and this conversation's over. He got up and walked out. And I walked out of his classroom and go left or right. I took about three, four steps. Fifteen-year-old boy standing in my Christian school. God said, you're not angry at coach. You're angry at your dad. And if you would forgive your dad, this would all end. I started crying. God, I choose to forgive my dad. That was a wonderful day in that 15-year-old boy's life. The anger and the bitterness, gone. Why? Because God walked over to the tormentors. He said, leave him alone. How long will you kick against the pricks?
How long will you say, Brother Josh, why'd you go there tonight? It might be something small from last week. It might be something from today. Or it might go all the way back to when you were a teenager. And as you said, I'll never forgive him. I'll never forgive her. She doesn't deserve it. So why am I tormented? That's why. I finish with one last statement. Stephen was being stoned. And he made a statement very similar to Christ on the cross. He was being hit with the stones and he looked up to heaven and he said, Lay not this sin against their charge. You know what I'm talking about? And they died. They were killing him. And he basically said, forgive them. Who was standing there? Saul, holding the coat. Just a few chapters later, God says, how long are you going to kick against the pricks? Do you know what one of those pricks was when he heard Stephen say that? Lay not the sin against their charge. Poke. It's called the forgiveness of God, Paul. Huh. That was weird. When you forgive your offenders, you demonstrate for the lost world the forgiveness of Christ on the cross. The world doesn't forgive. But when you forgive, people say, you forgave them for that? Mm -hmm. That's weird. And the Holy Spirit comes down and pokes them. Because you demonstrated the forgiveness of Christ to them. Who at work needs to see you forgive somebody so that they can be pricked in their conscience about the need of salvation. Heads bowed, eyes closed. I want a pianist to come to the play. Here's what I'm going to say. Here's the invitation. When the first note of the music hits, will you...